Cindy wants to know, is oral sex okay in Catholic marriage? My husband, just every now and then, he really likes it if I give him a blowjob just for some variety in our sex life. And he says there's no moral problem with that and it turns him on. But I'm not sure what I think and feel about that. Barbara asks, In episode 61, in the story of Jeff and Joanne that you told, you seem to say that the husband's kissing of breasts in that story was wrong and that it was disordered. But I like it when my husband kisses my breasts during foreplay. It really helps me to be sexually stimulated and attracted to him. So so is that off limits in a Catholic marriage? Bill raises this question. I get really turned on when my wife bites me and it helps me to have sex with her. I find that I don't have to use Viagra then. So is that okay? Is it better for me to use the Viagra? I don't want to not be able to have the fullness of sexual intimacy with her. The last two episodes of this podcast brought up questions. Now, these were not actual questions from listeners, but listeners brought up similar questions, right? Questions like these come up. And today, we're going to get into much more deeply how to think about the moral quality of sexual acts in Catholic marriage. Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. In this podcast, we confront the tough issues we Catholics have in our day-to-day lives. We confront head-on our struggles in the natural realm, the psychological difficulties that keep us from fully loving our Lord and Our Lady in a deep, personal, intimate way. And this podcast helps you focus inward on your interior integration to help you bring together the different parts of yourself into unity and harmony with God. Together, We're on a journey toward deep transformation in our mindsets, our heart sets, and our body sets, a radical transformation at the core of our being so that our souls can one day enter into contemplative union with God. I'm clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski, and I am here with you to be your host and guide. This podcast is part of Souls and Hearts, our online outreach at soulsandhearts.com, which is all about shoring up our natural foundation for the Catholic spiritual life, all about overcoming psychological obstacles to being loved and to loving God and our neighbor. This is episode 69. It's released on May 24th, 2021, and it is titled Good and Bad Sex in Catholic Marriages. What are the moral limits? How far is too far? Well, that all depends on the direction in which you're going. St. Augustine talked about evil as a privation of the good. Evil is what happens when there's a vacuum because there isn't any good around, right? So if you're attempting just to avoid evil in your sexual life, you just want to make sure there's no evil in your sexual life, you're trying to make a privation of the privation of good. It's much better to reorient and to seek what is good, to seek what's best, whatever that may mean for your sex life, even if you have to give up some things from which you may derive pleasure. And that's not to condemn the physical pleasure of sexual intimacy, not at all, but we need to place it into an ordered hierarchy of goods, right? There's lots of confusion about the morality of different sexual expressions in Catholic, in Catholic marriages. There's a lot of, there's a lack of clear guidance on this, almost like a conspiracy of silence when it comes to really getting into the specifics. There's a lot of terrible advice too. I've heard all kinds of terrible advice 
from Catholic sources. It may be well-intentioned, but it causes harm. And this comes in all from all different types of directions. You know, authorities saying that, yes, something is okay in Catholic marriage when it's really not, or other authorities condemning things that really are good in Catholic marriages. So there's all kinds of ways where this can be mistaken, where this can be misunderstood. Now, because it's a new area, I could also be making mistakes here too. A lot of this, like I said, new territory, not well defined. And so to that end, I invite feedback. If I teach anything that's an error, I want you to get in touch with me. Email me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com or call me at 317-567-9594. That's my, that's my cell phone number. Tuesdays and Thursdays between 4.30 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Those are my conversation hours. All right, if you can, let me know from the Catechism or from Church Documents or Canon Law or Denzinger's Compendium or Ludwig Odd's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, wherever you find the citations that seem to contradict anything that I would say in here. But don't email me and tell, and tell me that a confessor that you went to 10 years ago said that anything goes sexually in your marriage and that God doesn't mind as long as it leads to vaginal intercourse in the end. That's not helpful. It's going to be clear that that isn't the case just from the presentation today. We're learning together to reflect and to consider thoughtfully our sexual intimacy in marriage. And this is so rarely done. This is something that people need a lot of help with. So... What kinds of typical ways are there of approaching sexual morality within Catholic marriages? Well, some people want a list of do's and don'ts. I just want to know what we can do and what we can't do. Just give me a list. Sometimes you hear something like that. Just a list of approved sexual activities and a list of sexual activities that are not approved. All right. Well, that approach is simple. You got to hand it. You got to give it that. It's uh, easy to understand. It doesn't require much reflection. But... The reality is much more complex than that. There is a list of intrinsically disordered activities, and so these are things that are, by their very nature, not good. They're evil. They're not oriented toward procreation by their very nature, and they can't be made good by any circumstances or any intentions that the person may have. There's examples of this. We'll talk about it more. One would be anal sex, right? Anatomically, anal sex cannot lead to procreation, right? Fetishes in which some body part becomes the focus of sexual interest and the focus of sexual expression, like feet or ears or the navel or some external object that, that starts to suck up all the attention, like underwear or shoes or something like that. Right? There's also acts that can never be oriented toward the bond of marriage because they're degrading to the human person. Right? So right now in the world, as the world talks about sexual intimacy, they talk about consenting adults. As long as two people are consenting and they like what they're doing, then it should be fine. Right? Well, this is a kind of mutual hedonism right? where people can wind up using each other for sexual gratification even within Catholic marriages. Right? So what kind of examples do we have of that? Right? Well, what's sometimes called impact play, spanking, flogging, paddling, it's all about power and domination, bondage, restraints, dominance, submission, the use of leather belts to restrain your sexual partner, voyeurism, like watching porn together, or role playing where you're taking on different roles and creating a fantasy atmosphere. All of those things do not lead to the bond of marriage. 
Another one that's, that is actually more common than people think is erotic asphyxiation. That's the official technical term for what some people call breath play. And from healthline.com, it's defined as this. This type of sexual activity involves intentionally cutting off the air supply for you or your partner with choking, suffocating, or other acts. People who are into breath play say that it can heighten sexual arousal and make orgasms more intense, but it isn't without its risks, and lots of them it can turn deadly if you don't take the proper precautions. So when it comes to breath play or erotic asphyxiation, there's all kinds of guidelines that are out there for this kind of thing. Well, by its very nature... Choking your spouse is not, in, it's not good. It's intrinsically evil. There's no way that that can be made good. We'll talk about this when we get into more about moral acts. So let's bring in, let's move away from just a list of do's and don'ts, right? There is a list of don'ts, but let's get more sophisticated. Let's get, let's get more nuanced about our attempts to understand what's good and what's not within Catholic married sexual intimacy. So I'm going to invite you all to take a look at paragraph 1749 to 1761 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church for an excellent discussion of how to evaluate the morality of any given act, including sexual acts. That's very much worth reading. It's very clear. And we're going to do a brief review of how to evaluate the morality of sexual acts. And I promise we're not going to get too technical. We're not going to get too philosophical. We're going to keep this clear. Let's just start with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1750. That reads as follows. The morality of human acts depends on the object chosen, the end in view or the intention, the circumstances of the action. Those three things, the object, the intention, and the circumstances. Those three things make up the sources or constitutive elements of the morality of human acts. All right, so we've got three things that we need to evaluate. We need the object chosen, the intention, and the circumstances. Those three things. So the Catholic Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska, put out a nice summary, which it entitled, The Three Parts of the Moral Act, And that was designed for Catholic high school students. You can find it on the internet. It's easy. So let's just go over these three elements, right? The object. That's the action or the inaction that is chosen. It's the, quote, what, end quote. So for example, for Bill's example, the object would be using Viagra, right? Or for Barbara's example, right, the object, the actual act, is her husband kissing her breasts. That's the actual act. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the object. Or it could be the husband stimulating the wife's genitals with his tongue in oral sex. That's the act, right? We're looking at those acts. The second part, though, is the intention or the motive or the end, right? That's the reason for doing the action or for not doing the action, right? That's the intention. It's the motive. And then the third part, the circumstances are the situational factors which may affect the morality of an action in some way. That's the who, the what, the where, and the how on this presentation from the Diocese of Lincoln. And so all three of these, the object the intention and the circumstances must be evaluated to determine if a moral act is good or evil. 
All three must be good for an act to be moral. You can't have two out of three. You can't have one out of three. You got to have all three. And you start by analyzing the object first, because it's the most important, then the intention, which is the second most important, and then the circumstances. All right, so the object, or that's the action, right, that, that you're taking or not taking, that can be good, bad, or neutral. The object can be good, bad, or neutral. A bad object can never be justified even with the most laudable intentions or even in the most exceptional circumstances. A bad object is always bad. The intrinsic evil of a bad object cannot be erased because of the circumstances or the intentions. So an example is suicide. That's always intrinsically evil. Even if there's good intentions with it, even if there are um, mitigating circumstantial factors, the act itself is always evil. So that's when the act itself is immoral and no circumstances or intentions can change that. So let's go to the second one. That's the intention, right? That's the motive, right? A good or neutral action can become bad if there is a bad intention, and so the example given is that almsgiving is a good action, but it can be done with wrong intentions or in the wrong circumstances. So sometimes objectively evil acts are done for good reasons, right? For reasons that are intended to be good. So for example, in 2007, a young Chilean prostitute auctioned off 27 hours of sex so that she could take that money to, and give it to charity to help disabled children. Right? So her motive of helping disabled children is indisputably good, right? But the action, the object of prostitution, right, is intrinsically evil and cannot be made good by her good motive. So the goodness of an act can be diminished or totally lost because of bad motives. Now, there can be mixed motives, and this is where understanding things in terms of parts can be extremely helpful. Parts work where you understand that we have these parts, we have these distinct clusters that have particular impulses and desires and feelings and thoughts and body sensations, and that these last over time, and that they actually are part of our system, part of who we are, and they can become active at certain times and blend and take over and start driving the bus. That can actually really be helpful in terms of understanding this aspect of Catholic morality in terms of intentionality. What's important to remember here, though, is that the ends never justifies the means. The end is the goal. It's the reason for doing it. Like this Chilean prostitute wanted to raise money to help these, these kids. But that doesn't make the object, the means, legitimate, right? Which in this case would be prostitution. Okay, so the third area is the circumstances. And that's everything else that may be morally relevant to the situation. And that's the who, the where, how it's done doing something in the wrong way, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, right? So for example, if a husband and wife are sharing sexual intimacy and there is love from the husband towards the wife and love from the wife towards the husband and there's nothing intrinsically morally evil about anything that they're doing, they have a good object and they have good means that they're using to do this, good intentions, but their children wit witness the sexual intimacy they weren't prudent about making sure that they had privacy for this and the children saw that, well, then all of a sudden that's a circumstantial problem, right? The where and the when 
were particularly problematic. And that can take the goodness of that act and make it, make it evil, morally problematic. So circumstances can make a good action bad. They can make a good action better. They can make a bad action worse. And they can make a bad action not as bad. So circumstances can affect the moral quality of an act in these ways. They can make a good action bad, a good action better, a bad action worse, and a bad action not as bad. But bad circumstances can never make a bad action good. It's important to remember that. Remember, this is kind of nuanced, right? Every intrinsically evil action will stay evil regardless of the circumstances. So remember, for an act to be good, all three elements of that act must be good. You must have a good act, good intentions behind the act, and good circumstances surrounding the act. All three of those must be good for the act to be good. All right, so let's start taking a look at examples of real things that come up in Catholic marriages. Let's take a look at the, um, the object. We'll start with the first element, right? This is where we're evaluating what is the action taken. And for sexual intimacy between Catholic spouses, we need to have the sexual acts be, first of all, open to procreation, that is open to life, open to the generation of a new human being, because that's the first thing that sex is made for. And the second thing is the strengthening of the marital bond, the authentic union of the spouses. So when we look at these acts that may be desired or that may be happening in the sexual intimacy between spouses, we're going to look at whether those acts are open to procreation and do they bring about, are they oriented toward strengthening the relationship, the union between the spouses? All right, so let's take a look at some of these different questions that have come up. Let's look at the example of Viagra that Bill brought up. Well, this is an interesting thing because this actually has been addressed uh, not, not formally from the Vatican as far as I know, but by the bishops. There was an interesting little answer to this question by Father Rocky Hoffman on June 14th of 2011. The question, is the use of Viagra morally acceptable in the Catholic Church? And here's Father Hoffman's response. The morality of the use of any medicine depends on the object, the intention, and the circumstances. Okay, so that right there, we're just starting there. That's that's the same thing that we were just reviewing, right? So he says that assuming that the Viagra medicine has only one purpose, and that is to facilitate the marital act, that is the couple having sex, then it can be taken licitly only by married people who are open to life. All right, so now he's starting to talk about the other elements of this, the who, right? Married people who are open to life. If people are not married and they're not open to life, then it would be morally impermissible to take Viagra. If the married couple is beyond childbearing age, but otherwise are open to life, it could be morally listed to use Viagra if it helps to keep the love and affection alive between the husband and the wife. All right, so there he's saying, okay, it's the taking of Viagra as a medication is not an intrinsically evil act. It's not morally good. It's not morally evil. It's neutral. So now we go to the intentions. And so if the intention 
for this is to increase the bond of the spouses, the union of the spouses, and the rest of the circumstances are okay, there's no problem. It's a morally licit act. It's permissible. It could, and it could be good, right? It could be a very good thing to, for Bill to be doing. Now, I'm going to nuance this a little bit more, though. But let's say that something psychologically is going on that's being expressed through Bill's inability to get an erection unaided by medication. Well, I would say that you might want to think about that because that actually is not all that uncommon, right? For there to be physical expressions of psychological distress or conflicts or so forth. So I would also recommend that Bill take a look at that 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 be something that Bill takes seriously, that, hey, there could be something going on that isn't purely physical or purely medical, but there could be something going on psychological. And so this difficulty with maintaining an erection could be a trailhead for Bill to look at some kind of dynamics that are going on, some part of him that might not want to have sex with his wife, some part of him that is maybe angry with her or frustrated with her. And so what I would say is that it's also valuable to look at this from a broader context, right? So Father Hoffman says that what we need to reject is the instrumentalization of sex for pleasure, right? That's right. So if the end is just for my pleasure, or if the end is for the pleasure of my wife, and it's not about the marital bond, and it's not about procreation, then we get into morally problematic waters. All right, so let's take a look at another example that sometimes comes up. And that is when a husband may use his fingers to stimulate his wife because she doesn't get very stimulated just by the sexual intercourse, the vaginal intercourse by itself. Right? So so let's say there's a situation in which a husband out of love for his wife and a desire to deepen the bond and for them to be able to experience orgasm together in the context of the love and the intimacy that they share, there's nothing morally problematic with that as part of foreplay intrinsically. And if his intentions are to foster marital bond and that act is open to life, well, then there's no problem at all with it, right? It's a very good thing to be doing. And if it's in a different context where the husband, for example, doesn't want to have children because there's a promotion at work or there's financial concerns. And so the idea is, well, if he stimulates her, then she'll stimulate him and they can do this mutual masturbation thing that's intrinsically problematic. That's a problem there because, first of all, the act of masturbation is intrinsically evil. And second of all, because there's no intention of procreation, but there's also not an intention necessarily to foster the relationship between the spouses, the husband may simply want to experience the pleasure of orgasm, right? So it's usually more complex than that in terms of motives and so forth, especially when you start thinking about it in parts. But if that's what's driving it, now there's a moral problem with that act. Well, let's look at the example of kissing breasts that Barbara raised. Now, for Jeff from episode 61, which was referred to in that question, had a needy exiled part that got very regressed in sex with his wife, Joanne, and sucked 
vigorously on her nipples, causing her pain. And, you know, at this point, Jeff's not seeing Joanne as a person at all. This part of him that's taken over and that he's sort of given into in terms of the passions is starved from maternal affection. There's a way that it's trying to get some kind of mommy needs met. And there's an illusion that this is a way that it can happen when he's in this regressed state, when he's taken over by this part. Well, this again is not oriented toward the good of the spouses, right? This is a part of him that's driven to try to meet his own needs in a very self-absorbed way. So you have a real problem with the intention, right? When we're talking about what Barbara is saying, though, because she raised that question of, I like it when my husband kisses my breast during foreplay. It really helps me to be sexually stimulated. And if that helps her to connect with him sexually in sexual intimacy, and if the couple is open to life, and if the intention is to strengthen the marital bond, no problem. That's a good thing, as long as there's no other circumstances that would get in the way. So it's not so simple as just saying, you know, kissing breasts or sucking on breasts is bad or good. It depends on the context in which all of these things are happening. Well, let's take another example, right? This example of sensual biting, right? Because that was part of Bill's question, right? Um, when his wife bites him, then um, he can get aroused and he doesn't need the Viagra. So even though the Viagra is a morally illicit option, uh, assuming that these other intentions and the circumstances are good, what about the biting, right? Now we're moving into something that, you know, may become a little bit more questionable. It's actually technically known as odoxalagnia, and it can be roughly defined as the act of creating or enhancing sexual arousal through biting. All right, so is it morally evil, intrinsically morally morally evil for one person to nibble on another person or to um, gently bite another person, all right? Well, I don't think it's intrinsically morally evil. I think it depends on the nature of the biting and whether there's physical harm caused by the biting. So that would be the first question about the quality of the object, right, or the intrinsic moral quality of the act. Is there physical harm happening from this? But from the way that Bill described this in his original question, I don't think so. All right, so then I, I wonder, what's the intentionality here, right? If the intentionality of the wife is to create some sort of dominance over her husband, to have a sense of power over him, you know, if she's trying to you know, control him or demean him through the biting, well, then we've got a problem in the area of intention. But if her intention is to bring him to a place where he can, where he can express his love for her in physical intimacy and sexuality in a wholesome way, if that's what she's doing and if it's part of their foreplay, well, then I don't think that there's a problem with the intentionality there a little biting, that's not going to float everybody's boat, right? It's not like something that's in some sort of imperative in, 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 in foreplay, but I would not condemn it, right? Again, assuming that the rest of the circumstances are okay. What about like sex toys? Well, let's talk about sex toys in marriage. What are, what are sex toys? Well, let's define them as objects used to provide or increase sexual pleasure, such as vibrators or dildos. I mean, sometimes suction toys. 
You know, now, first of all, when you look at these things, not that you should uh, necessarily be spending a lot of time looking at sex toys, but when you look at the marketing of these things, the hype is all about maximizing pleasurable sensations. It's not about being open to children, and it's not about uh, the bond between the uh, husband and the wife. It's about increasing pleasure. There's this real focus on the hedonism. So we want to be thoughtful about that. I think there can be cases made. Again, it depends on the use of the toy. So in considering the use of a sex toy, we need to be thinking about, okay, does this lead the person to be more open to life, right? To, does it contribute, to, does it is it oriented toward that? And is it oriented toward the authentic love between the spouses? Or is it really focused on maximizing sexual pleasure for me, right? Or for my spouse. I can conceive how some sex toys might not be morally illicit in their essence. I can see a carve out for certain types of sex toys, but I can see that not existing for other sex toys, right? So it's a hard thing here because again, this is why I think a lot of distinctions don't get made. I think this is why people avoid trying to make distinctions in here because you can wade into some murky waters. So the question then becomes, for example, can a dildo be used by a Catholic married couple? And a dildo is usually a piece of plastic that resembles a penis that can be inserted into various orifices. Well, it's hard for me to imagine that a husband and a wife using a dildo is actually going to be intrinsically good. I just can't see that. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't see good. I don't see that as intrinsically morally good. It's certainly not oriented toward procreation or towards the union of the spouses. It's an attempt to replace the male reproductive organ with rubber or plastic. Other sex toys that might be used include like vibrators. And that to me seems in some ways different because a vibrator used externally on the wife with the intention of procreation, with the intention of the bond between the husband and the wife, if, if she is unable to be stimulated by the way the husband is, is with her, that might be morally licit. That may be morally licit. I'm open to that idea. I can't definitively say, again, it depends on other circumstances, but I can see a possibility there. I would, of course, as a psychologist, be questioning, okay, why is it that a vibrator seems to be needed? If there's a history, for example, of a long use of a vibrator, for example, before she converted to Catholicism, and that's the only way that she can become sexually aroused now because there's been some desensitization in her body, well, that may be something that the couple could also work toward. If things become more ordered in the way that the couple is interacting, then the sex can also become better. There can be greater sexual responsiveness. Now, that doesn't always happen, but a lot of times it does. One of the things I've noticed clinically is that when couples really do work on all of the aspects of the relationship, the sexual intimacy very often improves, but it improves at the end of the whole process. It improves after the whole Catholic canopied marriage bed is solidified. Once that's really strengthened, then at the end, 
the sex gets better in the marriage. And a lot of times that gets better as an effect. If the focus is on having better sex, a lot of times that undermines the process. But if the focus is on really loving our spouses and on really loving our children, really developing that family life, that's a whole different perspective. And it's one that I found to be a lot more successful in the long run. What about the Cindy's example where her husband is asking her to perform oral sex on him and he ejaculates? Well, again, here we have a clear, a clear problem with the object, right? The action taken is such that it closes the door to the procreation, right? Because his semen, his seed winds up in her mouth and there's no way that children can come from that. So that's, that's easy one to eliminate right off the bat because of the problem of the, the moral problem, the morally problematic object. So what about the example of a husband performing oral sex on his wife? Well, again, we got to look at the question of is that intrinsically morally problematic in terms of the object? I've heard different opinions about that from different priests that I've talked to about it. My take on it is that it's not necessarily intrinsically evil. I think it's problematic for a number of reasons for a lot of people in terms of the situational aspects of it, the intention and the circumstances, but I think it's something that possibly could be morally neutral. I'm not certain about this at all, as you can tell by the way that I'm hedging it. And there may be somebody that has some more authoritative statement to make about it. At least we're talking about it on this podcast. I could see, though, that it being another way of stimulating her as part of foreplay that's oriented towards procreation, or at least open to it, that's also oriented toward the bond of the spouses, and that culminates in vaginal intercourse and that there's no other contraindications from the circumstances, I could see that being okay. All right, well, let's move on to some diagnostics. One of the things that that I'm going to suggest as a, as a psychologist in looking at these situations is to say, okay, let's look at the fruit. What's the direction that we're going to in terms of openness to life and the bond between the spouses? What's the trajectory of our sexual intimacy between the husband and the wife over time? Is more order coming in? Do the sexual acts support the whole Catholic canopied marriage marriage bed? Are they bringing us closer to trusting in God's providence, which is the floor? Are those acts helping us in our human formation? Are they helping us with getting our attachment needs met and our integrity needs met, not violating any attachment needs, not you know violating any integrity needs? Are they helping the commitment in the marriage? Are, is empathy growing? Is there an acceptance between the husband and the wife of reality? Is that all coming together? Is everything getting better? Or are the sexual acts more furtive, right? Are they hidden? Are they being kept secret, not talked about, right? Let's bring these into the light. Let's bring these into the presence of God. What happens when we pray about our sexual intimacy, when we bring these things before God? Now, there could be some shame in that because of just 
some hangups we have about sex, right? That are due to a poor formation of conscience or previous experiences or traumas or things like that. Well, those are good tra- those are good trailheads for us to be able to work on in our human formation or in therapy if it involves trauma. Let's bring that prayer in though. And let's remember that I think that God gives us a lot of latitude to make mistakes if we have good will, if we have good intentions, if we're willing to make sacrifices for our spouse's good and our own good. This whole area of sexuality is really, really tricky. It's really difficult. It's subtle. It's nuanced in a lot of ways. And so I think God understands that we have some limited capacities. But I also believe that if we seek, we're going to find, right? We have that on good authority, right? I think a lot of people, though, don't actually seek to know what God wills in these situations. They don't actually bring these things into prayer. For a lot of Catholic couples, the whole zone of sexual intimacy is like its own private reserve that their prayer doesn't really go to, and that frankly, they often don't discuss with their spouses. So that's another way to do some diagnostics on this is, can God be present? And can we have conversations between husbands and wives about this? All right, so I just want to close by saying that my clinical experience is that if Catholic husbands and wives work on this in a dedicated way, if they bring God in, if they communicate, things get better. I've worked with cases in which oral sex performed by the husband and the wife is no longer necessary to have mutual orgasms in sex, right? Things are getting more and more ordered. Things get better when we bring order into the relationship. So just a lot of encouragement for any of you that might be suffering with these kinds of things. We all need help. We all need structure. We all need support. I mean, if you're interested in a program for human formation and in a community that is focused on this from a Catholic perspective, I want you to know about the Resilient Catholics community. I've mentioned it before. We have about 100 people on the waiting list so far. Not all of them are jo- will join, but we are planning to take in a, a maximum of 80 new members in the month of June. We don't want to lose our personal touch. Um, get on the waiting list. I'm going to encourage you to get on the waiting list for the Resilient Catholics community. If you're interested in this podcast, if you like the things that we're working on here, if this all appeals to you, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. That stands for Resilient Catholics Community. That'll get you to the landing page for our community. You can read about it there. You can also sign up on the waiting list. Folks on the waiting list are going to get the first chance to join the community. And so we're going to be sending out a, a link on June 1st to open up registration. Registration will last until either we get those 80 new people or throughout the rest of the month of June, whichever comes first. Mark your calendars. May 25th, that's a Tuesday, from 7.30 to 8.45 p.m. There's going to be a meeting about the RCC reopening. We're going to do lots of Q&A for our waitlist members. So if you hear this on Monday when it first comes out, the 24th, you get on that waiting list, we're going to send out another link right before that that meeting on May 25th uh, from 7.30 to 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll get you, we can get you into that meeting to ask questions about what the RCC is about. You'll also find out a lot more about that. And just want to remind everybody of conversation hours. I 
open up my cell phone lines to you on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 317-567-9594. p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So May 25th, 27th, not June 1st. I'm not going to do that June 1st, but June 3rd, 8th, 10th, 15th, 17th, 22nd, 24th, and 29th, 4.30, p.m. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, especially if you have questions or you're interested in some way in the uh, Resilient Catholics community. That'd be a great thing to talk about or anything else that uh, comes up with regard to this to this podcast. So I want to invite you there. And then... Let's just wrap it up. I'm going to ask you for your prayers. I really appreciate the prayers from my listeners. It's really helpful to me. So please pray for me. I pray for you. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.